Hello, and welcome to Fraud Eat Strategy, an FTI consulting podcast series in which we explore the myriad ways that fraud, corruption, and misconduct can derail strategy and cause havoc. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director in FTI's Risk and Investigations Practice, where I assist clients and their outside counsel in managing their response to event-driven white-collar crime, misconduct, and bribery incidents. So imagine this scenario. Your whistleblower hotline just received an anonymous email making sweeping allegations that members of the company's senior leadership team are involved in bribery of foreign officials in six countries, and the bribes are being paid by several different consultants who themselves are former foreign officials, and one of them is a joint venture partner. It's a terrifying situation that's filled with unknowns, including how much is this all going to cost and how much investigation is enough. The burning question here is, is how do companies scope the investigation to make sure it addresses the allegations at hand without expending tens of millions of dollars in the process? So joining me today to discuss how to bring order to the chaos of those early days of an FCPA investigation and avoid mortgaging the company's future in the process are Wilmer Hale partner Kim Parker and FTI Senior Managing Director Mike Archibald. So Kim's practice focuses on white-collar crime matters, internal corporate investigations, and compliance counseling. Kim is vice chair of the firm's litigation controversy department and co-leads the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act and anti-corruption practice. She represents clients in a range of criminal and enforcement matters, and also provides compliance and governance guidance. She's conducted internal investigations in the U.S., Asia, Africa, Europe, and Latin America, and has represented companies and individuals in a variety of FCPA enforcement matters. She also regularly counsels clients facing difficult FCPA issues in a variety of business contexts and assists clients in developing and implementing FCPA compliance programs and conducting FCPA training. And she's a regular speaker at FCPA. Events. Kim's also a co-author with Roger Witten, Jay Holtmeyer, and Aaron Sloan of the firm's New York office of the leading treatise in the field, Complying with the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Mike Archibald has more than 15 years of consulting experience and specializes in forensic accounting, financial investigations, and litigation consulting. He also oversees large-scale financial investigative matters involving complex accounting and financial issues. He has considerable experience working on Foreign Corrupt Practices Act investigations, assessments of internal control environments, and has worked with federal, state, and local municipalities to develop and implement compliance monitoring programs. So welcome, Kim and Mike, and, and thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks, Scott. Looking forward to the discussion. Mike, for having us, Scott, and Kim, it's great to be here with you. So those initial steps that the company takes are critically important in ensuring that the investigation is focused, thoughtfully conceived, and likely to yield information that will either corroborate or refute the initial allegations. But scoping the investigation appropriately isn't the only consideration. So what are those critically important first steps to take to make sure the internal investigation is structured appropriately and the company's in the best possible position to receive full cooperation credit if it is ultimately determined that the allegations and the initial investigation results warrant disclosures? Well, Scott, when I heard the scenario as you laid it out, some of the things that raised alarm bells for me were, number one, the senior level involvement, at least in the allegation. Now, we don't yet know how credible the allegation is, but at least in the allegation, you have senior people in the company who you may be relying on for their management expertise. Uh, Auditors may be relying on them. Customers may be relying on them. And 
potentially they're involved in serious wrongdoing. So thinking about first, how do you structure the investigation so that those senior leaders are not supervising any of the individuals involved in it is really key to the credibility of the investigation ultimately. And so thinking about who are these senior leaders? Who are you going to get to do the investigation? We're going to talk about that later. But the question very quickly will be, is there any even perception that these senior leaders could be influencing the investigation or anyone that is conducting the investigation would pull their punches because of the involvement of the senior leader. So when I'm thinking of this scenario, one of the first things I want to think about is who's going to do the investigation? Who are those people going to report to? And to be very careful that the individuals who are at least alleged to have been involved or could have been involved are very much separated from the investigation for the integrity of that investigation. So some allegations are lacking in detail and suggest the need to conduct maybe a limited scope investigation in an effort to gauge whether the allegations themselves have merit before committing resources to sort of a full-blown investigation. Whereas other allegations, like the scenario that we were just discussing, they're pretty specific. They read as though the, you know, the whistleblower is a member of senior management or someone in certainly with high-level access and contain allegations against senior management or the board, which already sort of suggest the need for maybe an independent investigation from the outset. So what are some of the variables that organizations should consider as to whether they need that kind of limited scope triage approach? to help get it to that inflection point of go, no go, or should they then instead bypass that and jump right into a full-scale investigation at the outset? So what are some of those milestones and categories of finding that dictate which of those two approaches is appropriate? Well, I, I think you've rightly hit on an important point, which is not all allegations are equal, and not everything requires the most comprehensive investigation strategy. There are certainly some some matters that can be very well scoped with some internal resources without bringing in outside resources, or at least initially scoped that way. So I, I don't think every investigation is equal or needs to be handled equally. I think here, again, the allegations involving senior management are pretty key in terms of how the company should think about approaching this. Because once you do have more senior leaders involved, there will kind of automatically be a question about the independence of the people doing the investigation and whether those people will will be influenced or will be worried about what they find. So that is one factor here that's pushing me more in the direction of, of thinking about bringing in external or independent resources. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't some initial key steps to just kind of figure out the lay of the land that could be and probably should be done pretty quickly internally. Who are these third parties? When was the last time they were paid? Where were they paid out of? Who may have been involved in those approvals? Those are some key initial scoping steps that can help you determine how you want to structure the investigation. And it may be perfectly appropriate and, in fact, more efficient to pull some of that initial basic information internally 
have that be managed by the internal legal department, maybe with internal audit working under their direction. So it is is structured in a privileged way. But I do think the involvement of senior managers and the relative pervasiveness of what they're alleging here, it's not one country, it's not one contract, it's multiple countries, multiple partners, does lead me to think this is probably something where for the ultimate credibility of your findings, whether you find there is a problem or even, and maybe especially if you find there isn't a problem, that you have some external resource that you bring in to manage the investigation, it's probably likely you're going to end up there. So under that scenario, maybe the allegations aren't clearly articulated. It's not easy to glean whether the person you know, has line of sight to what they would need to be credible. The allegations are lacking in specificity. It's not readily confirmable. What are some of the outcomes in those initial investigations that would push the company toward that inflection point? Well, we've now corroborated some of what's been alleged. This is probably time to engage with outside counsel. What are some examples of those types of findings in those initial investigations that would drive that decision? There are stages and tiers of the investigation where you start by looking at one immediate circle of conduct before you build out to a broader circle. But the kinds of things I would be looking for is these allegations are that improper payments are being made to specific third parties, that those third parties are themselves former government officials. So I would be starting by pulling the diligence records for these third parties. Have they gone through diligence? When was the last time? Was the company aware that they were former officials? Or is that new information? Is that information that was already known and vetted during the diligence process? When was the last time that they were paid? How recent are the contracts? What contracts are these third parties involved in? Have they recently won any business? How large is that business? What do we know about the tender process for the business or you know, any other aspects of the recent business they may have won? Are we aware of other prior findings in these jurisdictions? So is any of this information that builds on either negative audit findings or other concerns that the company may have had in these jurisdictions so that it's corroborative of concerns we may have previously had, even if they weren't as specific? How detailed are the allegations? Does the reporter have any specifics, emails, text messages, anything that gives us more of a feel that there may be some problem here. Those are the types of things I would be looking for. Just to add to what Tim said, I think she put it in a very great fashion. I think we're looking to help find out if there's any there, there up front before we go and say we need the entirety of certain accounting systems or the entirety of certain electronic discovery records. I think there are certainly ways that you can scope this by speaking with the accounting and finance officials, the back office folks to obtain certain limited sets of data to see that if you decided to scratch the surface and kind of expand the biopsy a little bit more, that you might find something there. So I think there are certainly ways without crashing the boards to find out if there's any there there 
in sort of these initial upfront discussions without going full throttle or I, I hate to use the term, but boiling the ocean immediately. That That's nothing that no one wants. And I think right-sizing or focusing or fine-tuning these sorts of initial request discussions and data looks are, are the right way to determine if there's any there there that would require furtherance of the investigation in certain jurisdictions. Kim, you mentioned something that is sometimes overlooked, which is uh, internal audit findings. I have worked with internal audit extensively over the years. And, you know, in some organizations, they're really integrated and they're looked upon on equal footing with other very important organizational functions. Where, But in some, maybe they're looked upon a little bit negatively or maybe they're not taken seriously. And, you know, sometimes in those situations... These audit findings and the assignment of responsible parties and dates, it's not taken seriously. It's routinely ignored. So those are really, really good things to look at because that can give you a window on a lot of things, including the organizational culture. To add to the point of the audit findings, there's sometimes the reported audit findings, and then there's the actual audit findings. There have been numerous instances where we've seen a beautiful, pristine audit report, and only upon speaking with the audit team or taking a look at their work papers, do you discover that there's actually more there that could have or should have been reported up the chain. So I think, again, there's also things that are reported, but it does not tell the whole story. Sometimes, again, the as the forensic accounts, we can see it, but sometimes we don't grasp it fully and our attorney friends do help us get to that point where we really see what the crux of the issue that the internal audit was found was. Because again, what's reported is not always necessarily what was found. Agreed. Sometimes those audit reports get stepped on. So in the scenario I described in the introduction, the allegations are that bribes were paid in six countries by intermediaries. And sometimes, you know, when you are faced with allegations in multiple countries, obviously, if it's a U.S. issuer, you always have the DOJ and the SEC in mind. But how important it is to sort of synchronize how you engage with the SEC and the DOJ with their counterparts in these other countries when it comes to disclosures. Gone are the days where you only had to worry about U.S law enforcement. I think one big lesson of the past several years is that anti-corruption enforcement is global and that there are many other countries that are very interested and active in enforcing these laws. That being said, not all countries are. And it sort of depends, I think, on which countries you're talking about, about how early you want to engage and how you want to that doesn't mean you don't need to think about it because you absolutely do need to be thinking about what are the six countries, how active is the enforcement regime in those countries, how likely is it that the information could leak and prompt an investigation, local press reports, or others that's something you, you always need to be thinking about and whether you want to get ahead of it. But I do think that a decade or more ago, you might have just kind of did your investigation, focused on the U.S. authorities, and really the foreign authorities were an afterthought. I think now they have to be part of your strategy from the beginning. But whether you want, if you do choose to make a disclosure in the U.S., whether you're going to want to do that in conjunction with a, a disclosure outside the U.S. really will depend on 
what countries you're talking about and just the state of the legal regime in those places. There definitely are countries where you're going to want to do it basically simultaneously because you know they're going to be in communication with U.S. law enforcement. There's already strong communication channels and the information will will get out and you want to be the one controlling it. So in looking more closely at the intermediaries in, in the scenario that we posed at the beginning, you know, it turns out some of them, in terms of how they are engaging on behalf of the company, they're active in multiple additional countries, right? Not just the six that were part of the initial allegations. Is that reason enough to expand the investigation to those countries or would there need to be a little something more? My view is I would start by seeing if there's any any there there, as Mike said, in the countries that have been named already. But if you find something, I do think it is almost always going to be necessary to look where the, the other countries where the same intermediary is operating. I don't think that needs to happen from the beginning. I think you can stage it and foresee if you find issues of concern in the countries that have been identified. But I think it's going to be hard to defend the integrity and the scope of an investigation that found a problem in one place has the same intermediary in another place where you didn't look in the other place, unless there's some really good explanation for why that. It would be impossible for the conduct to have spread. But I don't think that has to be something you scope from the beginning. I would agree with that because it's such a risk of going down a rabbit hole too. You're working with six intermediaries and each of them have 12 countries in which they operate and there's no overlap. You know, now you've got this unmanageably large 60 country, 75 country investigation and you know, that becomes unmanageable. So electronic discovery and the review of electronically stored information it's safe to say it can be both a blessing and a curse. It's great to have access to this stuff. And sometimes emails provide really important context. Use of email review platforms with artificial intelligence capabilities can certainly drive efficiencies. But even with that, it's not unusual for emails and other electronically stored items to be measured in terabytes. So Mike, what are some strategies to filter electronic evidence and limit what's being reviewed to a subset of that terabyte, multi-terabyte population, instead of looking at millions of pages of documentation sort of mindlessly? Well, I'll say it's not uncommon to initially request and kind of obtain large amounts of data, both structured and unstructured, but only process what is necessary to kind of conduct your upfront reviews. And then if you need to expand past that, you can process additional information to kind of achieve those objectives. I mean, the sheer volume of data output from systems today is astronomical compared to what it was 5, 10, or 20 years ago when it was often about a gigabyte. There was wow factors now. That doesn't even scratch the surface. You're talking terabytes. But with terabytes, do not require millions and millions of man hours to get through these things. It really is figuring out now you have significant amounts of data at your disposal, but what the heck do you got to do with that? So refer or rely on some of kind of your, your prior best practices. And here, if you look at the example at hand with the whistleblower complaint, you already have a number of key data points. While it might be a voluminous whistleblower complaint, you can kind of right-size by seeking to corroborate the activity of the key individuals and users. In 
the accounting and finance systems along with their electronic communications, be it emails, be it text messages, be it other type of ephemeral messaging systems that are going to kind of capture certain types of activity. Use the contents of that complaint to kind of craft your responsive search terms as well as come up with a general timeline for the review. If the whistleblower complaint focuses on activity that's for a couple of years, maybe you go back two and a half or three years at this point to see, again, if you're, if you're scratching outside that immediate sort of show period and start to see things, that requires you know, kind of going back further. So starting small but extremely smart is usually how best to approach these things. But again, it does not, I think, um, put up a buffer up front from requesting a lot of information, but then only kind of processing it as it goes through. Because then I think if that makes it a little bit easier so you do not have to continue to go back to the company to ask for more and more. You request it up front, process it as you go through but also use those sort of key bits, even if it's only two or three items coming out of the whistleblower complaints. I think even here, we would have more than enough to to start, I think, a pretty good, solid initial internal investigation. So in addition to emails and electronically stored documents, there's also accounting, banking, and business records that may need to be subjected to forensic auditing. How has artificial intelligence changed things in terms of quality of forensic accounting analysis transaction testing, and the the sheer volume of records that can now be examined? Great question. So AI has emerged as a very useful and also powerful tool for forensic accounting investigations in two primary areas. I think analysis, which you kind of touched on, Scott, and then I'll go into a little bit output. First, the emergence of AI has allowed for the analysis of significant data sets across a number of disparate systems in a company and to do so in a relatively short amount of time. It used to just be where you take a look at finance and accounting records. Now it's finance and accounting plus T&E plus HR plus compliance plus supply chain. And you can wrap all of that up and I'm not going to say put a nice little bow on it, but it makes it a lot easier to review these disparate systems, to review, again, several gigabytes, terabytes of data worth of information to hone in on key aspects of the investigation or the case much quicker than ever before. And the second thing, which I'll touch on, is this kind of output. Uh, There's significant improvements in data analytics as well as data visualization, and it's made it easier for us accountants and data analysts to present our findings to companies, counsel, and regulators in a much more easier and smoother fashion than ever before. Dashboarding, dossiers, certain things that are not just the rote, here's an Excel analysis to help us capture our findings. There's powerful tools on the AI landscape that allow us make it a little bit easier to see what maybe the finance and accounting and other interconnectivity you see on a case, AI is really allowing us to do that and building in a lot of just the decades of experience we have across our data analytics teams, our technology teams, our accounting teams, our damages teams to really kind of come up with ways that make this smarter. It's really been a lot of advance over the last five years, more so than I've seen in the prior 10 or 15 years of my career. Yeah, and I think we've seen the use of AI technology, not only in the forensic accounting side, but even on the email review side, using technology-assisted review to really narrow the universe of relevant communications, find the relevant communications more quickly, identify similar communications once you've once you found the core document. So I think it's, it's making a difference across the board. The other thing I would add here is one development is just the comfort that the enforcement agencies have with AI has changed. I mean, they're using it on their side. They're very aware of how powerful it is. I think, again, 
if you talk about a decade ago, these were very new technologies and there may have been some skepticism that, what do you mean you're not going to look at every document? You know, what do you mean uh, a human is not going to look at every email? But law enforcement and boards and, and companies are so much more sophisticated now and understand that these tools are great for efficiency, they're cost effective, and they're really, really good. And in many cases, better than a human. And so it's not a heavy lift to explain to enforcement agencies, no, we did not look at every document, but here's the approach we used. We relied on technology and you're still getting the responsive material this way. So I think that's you know one development that we've seen in recent years. I, I think that's a really important point. I mean, you know, just on these email review platforms, they are getting so much more sophisticated. I mean, the thing that I think is really valuable is, you know, as you're going through your process and designating documents as hot documents or sort of worthy of, of further attention, you know, once you have a certain critical mass of those top documents that have been designated or flagged as being relevant, it gets to a point where these platforms are actually then going to prompt you and say, here's a cluster of documents that have characteristics in common with those that you've designated as hot documents. And it's incredibly accurate when they do that. You know, it takes a while and you have to have a certain quantum of documents that enable the system to learn. But then once you do, it's actually a Hey, the computer's right. It's pretty useful. So often, at the same time that there's an internal FCPA investigation that is underway, the compliance program and the internal controls may be getting a badly needed overhaul. Pretty quickly, you realize that the internal controls were lacking compliance program wasn't of best of breed, and there need to be parallel processes because that's part of the conversation that you are either having with the government or will be having. And it's better to say, you know, hey, these things are in flight as opposed to they're on the drawing board. What are the most common compliance program shortcomings that you guys have seen that usually need attention? And are there strategies to improve the anti-bribery and corruption program and internal controls without this work stream spiraling into a multi-year project? In some ways, there are a number of different common weaknesses that we see in compliance programs, but they can vary. A few that I think are quite common are the lack of monitoring in the lifespan of a third-party relationship. So I think there has been a lot of focus, rightly so, on onboarding and upfront due diligence when you bring on a third party, a vendor, an intermediary, and many companies that have compliance programs kind of have that piece down, but they don't pay as much attention to ongoing monitoring of third parties during the lifespan. And that's a place where it's not just about refreshing due diligence, though that's important, but you know, who's checking up on what the third party is doing? Are they getting activity reports? Do people know the practices the third party is engaging in? Is there monitoring of payments throughout the lifespan? And the DOJ recently updated their compliance guidance. And one of the things they emphasized is it's not only about onboarding, but the compliance program following third parties through the lifespan of the relationship. And as we know, since 90% of anti-corruption enforcement matters involve third parties, enhancing the controls and making sure you have those controls in place throughout the lifespan 
is important. In, in the hypothetical here, you've got six intermediaries. One of my first questions is going to be, okay, when were they on How long have we had these relationships? And in many cases, sometimes you have problems with third parties that have been with the company for years and no one even remembers who you know first brought them on. And so the big question will be, well, who was supposed to be monitoring and paying attention? So I think that's a key one for me that I see. And then another one, and I know, Mike, we've faced this in, in some cases together, is are your back-end controls married up to your front-end controls? So, you know, you've got front-end controls, you've got the vendor onboarding, you've got systems in place when you start approving a party to receive payments in your system, but are they connected up to the back-end controls? So if there were certain enhanced controls you put in place, enhanced approvals for higher risk third-party payments on the back end, was there follow-through with those? And are, are the systems connected up? Yeah. Um, those are two common issues that I see. I think Kim touches on not just common, but two of the, if not the most important issues with the, with respect to the monitoring and the back-end controls. I think if you looked at some other ones that are along the spectrum, the six intermediaries that we're looking at here as part of the hypo, do they even have contracts in place? What do those contracts call for? Are the services that are called for in the contracts being provided by the actual, by the intermediary? Or are they doing something that's completely different? Sometimes a third party can get in the house and create all sorts of havoc afterwards. And I think that's where the monitoring aspect comes in. And they're not performing up to the level that they were supposed to or not even doing the services that were called for. So I think that's a huge critical piece is what does the contract say upfront? Is there a contract in place to oversee the services? And then prior to the release of payment, are they being paid in line with what they were supposed to? If all of a sudden they were supposed to be paid a thousand for that service and it looks like they're being paid two thousand, three thousand, what's the reason for the delta? So before you let somebody in the house, you want to make sure that there's an agreement there. And before you let money kind of go out of the house, you want to make sure that there's a darn good reason through their invoice, through their contract, through purchase orders making sure that those financial controls all line up so that it got this treatment along the journey from sort of contracting to payment. So again, I think critical pieces on the monitoring side and then the back end, and then just throwing a little bit of detail on there with the contracting, with the proper paperwork in place to make sure that you're not letting money go out because the activity can occur. But once you actually push go on that payment, that's when you're really kind of on the hook with respect to that activity with these intermediaries. Kim mentioned, and it bears repeating, better than 90% of FCPA matters are triggered for the actions of intermediaries. So, you know, if you want to be able to successfully make the argument that you've got a meaningful program in place, you, you have to kind of get intermediaries right. And, you know, when you do due diligence, which is an important thing, you probably did some upfront risk categorization beforehand and you're focused on your high risk third parties. And yeah, you did some investigative due diligence and figured out who they are and whether they have any kind of problematic history. But that is as of a moment in time and that ages and sometimes it ages out really quickly. So, you know, the public record is dynamic and things can turn quickly, but equally important as to whether or not something maybe in the public record has changed the risk profile is how are you engaging with them and what are they doing? Because that's really where the problems occur. Not not because a third party did something unrelated to the what they're doing on your behalf. It's what they're doing on your behalf that is where things can go sideways. So just to answer reason that you want to have a pretty good line of sight of everything that's happened and that it's in keeping with what you expected that relationship to look like. 
Scott, to that point, I think when you talk about the intermediary example here is what an intermediary might be doing for you in Japan might be completely different from what that intermediary is doing for you in Chile, but they might have the same contract that's governing that sort of activity. So I think, again, this consistent regimented approach of looking at what it is that they are doing and what they're supposed to be doing is, is critical. Agreed. So as is sometimes the case when we have great guests like Kim and Mike, and the two have produced incredibly valuable content, we decide to, to publish the episode in two parts. So this concludes part one of Bringing Order to the Chaos. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director with FTI Consulting. Thanks for listening. And stay tuned for the part two of my discussion with Wilmer Hale partner, Kim Parker, and FTI's Mike Archibald. So if you have an idea on a fraud or corruption topic, guest, or case study, email us at fraudeatstrategy at fticonsulting.com. Thanks for listening.